Hey there, welcome to Louisiana Farm Life, a podcast where we talk with real farmers about who they are, what they grow, and the struggles they face on and off the farm. We'll also talk about what they enjoy doing when they're able to get away from the farm, if that ever happens. I'm your host, Carl Wiggers, and I grew up living my own Louisiana farm life in Northeast Louisiana in Winsboro. On this episode, I visit with a first-generation farmer who lives in Baton Rouge, but he farms all the way in Kentwood, Louisiana. It's about an hour drive. In this interview, he tells me how he wound up in agriculture as he finished up his political science degree at LSU. This is a little bit longer podcast than we've been putting out, but I think you'll enjoy it. Now let's get to the interview with Galen Iverstein on Louisiana Farm Life. Galen, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. You have a very interesting story in that you are a first-generation farmer. Tell me what you farm and how you found your way to that farm. Yeah, I mean, uh, we don't have a conventional farm story where it's been handed down generation to generation. Mm -hmm. We started this literally 10 years ago. Um, And it came out of um, me being a very mediocre student, to be (laughs) honest. Mediocre to less than that. Um, mainly because I, I was in college and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of jumped majors four or five times, um, finally landed on political science, basically because, you know, I could write and enjoyed the classes. <laughs> that was basically it, but didn't exactly have um, a plan for something to do with a political science mm-hmm. degree. You didn't want to go be a you know a lobbyist or anything? Right. Yeah, that, that wasn't really speaking to me. Um, so I was really struggle, struggling with the age-old question of, every liberal arts major is what do I do after this? Mm -hmm. And, um, so I got to, I I was working on a project for a class where we were really looking at, uh, it was an English class where it was writing about food and the particular topic that we were looking at was food policy and, um, a a lot to do with the farm bill and things like that. And me being a very mediocre student when I should have been writing a paper, I was going down YouTube rabbit holes of, um, how food is being produced in the country and alternative methods um, mm-hmm. and really looking at at farmers who are taking a direct market approach of producing the food and taking it all the way to the end consumer, uh, kind of protecting themselves from market fluctuations and um, producing things a little unorthodox um, and, and really uh, producing food in a way that is protecting topsoil and building topsoil. So that yeah. was... That was the the topics of agriculture that were really speaking to me, mm-hmm. and I found very interesting. Yeah, um, and were, were those any particular like crop? Like, was it cattle? Was it, it, it was chicken? All, yeah, it was all protein. So uh, I was mainly interested in in the um, intensive rotational grazing of cattle and how it's produ- how grass fed beef is produced mm-hmm. on small to mid mid size scale, and then how it gets to market. Um, which kind of led me to, you know, at, at the time I was actually going through the military entrance process and talking to a recruiter, I went down to New Orleans, went through MIPS, took my physicals, got my medical waivers, and I, I was thinking about joining the Marines. Like Just because you didn't have an op- another option, really? Or? You know, I, I was looking at officer candidate school and things like that. Um, I had one more year left of school. You know, that that was something I was like, well, I could parlay this into something else. Yeah. You know, I had my attorney. I could learn a trade or learn, exactly, a, learn a skill. Yeah, a skill in the military yeah. to parlay and maybe a career uh, in military. But uh, my uh, attorney brother was saying, for the love of God, we don't need any more <laughs> attorneys uh, in yeah. life. So he kind of steered me away from law school. Mm-hmm. Not that I had the, you know, the grades to go <laughs> knock it dead in law school or anything. 
Um, you didn't so, like undergrad, much less law school, right? Yeah, and it wasn't that I didn't like school. I just I, I couldn't find anything that really spoke to me, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to parlay into a career because and that, and that was kind of what led me to agriculture. Is I in my junior year, I was like, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And it came down to I want to produce something. You know, whether it's a widget, whittling sticks, or producing meat, I, I want to produce something that goes to a customer. I can have that relationship. I was going to ask you, what is it about the farm or about agriculture, about the food, you know, production cycle that attracted you? But I guess it's the being yeah. able to have a product at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. And and then you know, as far as an agricultural product for me, it was producing something with some integrity behind it, um, being able to speak to it, and really have uh, some convictions about putting that product out there. Cause that to me, that's the only way you can sell something mm-hmm. is if they if you have some conviction about what mm-hmm. you're doing, yeah, you know, like people selling me something that they don't really believe in. I can see through that, yeah. you know? So I wanted to be believe in what I was selling. Um, and to me, when you're producing an agricultural product, you better believe in it. Growing up, were you really, you know, aware or conscious of what, you know, kind of food you were eating and you know, what, Did you have that kind of approach? You know, I Um, guess, did you develop that through college or through this class? Yeah, mostly through that class. um, You know, my parents are good cooks and we always ate really well at home. Mm -hmm. But as far as like really thinking about where that food came from or how it was produced, no, I mean, my dad's joke was half of what you see here when he when he would point to I have two brothers when he would point to us he would say half of what you see here came from Sam's Club mm-hmm. so that was his kind of he was bang for buck kind of grocery mm-hmm. shopper yeah. you know he we ate a lot and he needed to be able to afford to eat yeah. to feed us um, so yeah I mean it, it didn't it wasn't something that I grew up with it mm-hmm. was something that just kind of uh, I, I read uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore Dilemma Dilemma mm-hmm. um, as a Barbara King solver wrote Animal Vegetable Miracle you know books like that that really opened up my eyes to how food's produced um, and, and things like that yeah. one of the things that you know is fascinating to me being in the YouTube age you know our generation we learn you mentioned the rabbit hole but we learn a lot on YouTube yeah I mean, you can learn how to make a podcast like this on YouTube now. Learn how to cut meat on YouTube. <laughs> you learn how to be a butcher. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, is that where you got the extent of your education on, you know, this food system? Well, no. So, um, you know, I did a lot of research, found some people around the country that I really wanted to focus on um, and seeing how they were doing it. Uh, namely, Joel Salton up in West in uh, Virginia, went up there, visited his farm for an intensive um, like seminar. An he does a seminar there. Okay. Okay. Here that you can go up there and spend a few days. And then I found an internship in New Hampshire through ATRA, which gotcha. is um, funded by Sarah Grant. It, it's basically a, a resources for organic farmers. And um, so I went up there on an internship, spent a season there. We were mostly doing produce. Uh, we were growing 40 acres of certified organic produce up there, but we also had uh, beef cattle, uh, some hogs and poultry. Um, and then... That that was the main reason for doing that was, you know, I'm 23 years old. I've never spent a day on a farm. I want to see if I have the physical and mental fortitude to wake up every day and do the work that's required of a farm. I mean, you obviously found out you liked it. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I, I loved, like, having a mission to every day that mm-hmm. I woke up. Um, there was whether you had a plan or not, there was something going to face you that you had to solve that day. Yeah. And it, there was no time to it. It was, you wake up and you work till it's done. One of like, the things that's neat about, I mean, I grew up on a farm very differently than you did, right? but you learn this, whether you're grown up on it or if you spend a season on it, 
every day is different. And I know that's probably true for you, especially every now. Every day is a, is a new set of challenges. You get and the same kind of work, but there's some kind of different twist to everything. Right? Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I know a lot of people say, oh, I was born to farm. But I think it's more of you, you're born with like the the coping and problem solving skills mm-hmm. to farm you yeah. know and and not everybody has that you yeah know, that that's it's a challenging way to make a living yeah you know you talk about kind of where this inspiration came from how you learn kind of this but tell me what your farm is like today you know or how you got to this farm i know you and your dad kind of went in together yeah so uh the way our farm is structured uh dad had the capital to buy land i didn't i was a college student there was mm-hmm. no way i was going to get a bank convince a bank to lend me money to buy Mm -hmm. land. So the way our our farm is structured is uh, my parents own the land, and then we have a farming entity that is a tenant of the land that we're 50-50 partners mm-hmm. on. So we the the farm entity rents the land from the land company. Okay. And now tell me about what you what what are, what are you raising? I mean, yeah, cattle. So when, when I came back from New Hampshire, we started real small. We uh, bought 65 acres in Kentwood, Louisiana. Um, mainly and and Kentwood because I knew Baton Rouge was going to be our market. Baton Rouge, possibly New Orleans. Um, I needed to be at least an hour from, or no more than an hour from a metropolitan area, mm-hmm. but I needed to be out of town to where land become you somewhat affordable it, yeah. Yeah, to, to farm. Um, so we got up there, started small, small cow herd, a few pigs, and I think we did like 800 chickens that mm-hmm. year or something like that. And really uh, started at the Red Stick Farmer's Market that year. It was a great launch point to get our products out there and kind of learn, you mm-hmm. know, that that was my dad is a big vision guy and he was ready to jump all in and dump a bunch of money and, and get this thing big. But I had the mentality of, you know, I got a lot to learn and the big, you know, uh, mistakes in this industry are very expensive mm-hmm. and um, and it costs animal welfare. You know, you got to be th- we have animals depending on us here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to let animal welfare suffer because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Yeah. So it was a good launch point to, you know, business minds would say that was a wrong, a, a wrong move because mm-hmm. cash flow was really hard. Mm-hmm. So basically we took the demand from farmers markets and just grew it every year. Um, so that was in 2010 was the first year we had a product to sell. We're in 2019 now we're on uh, 130 acres. So we ended up acquiring the land next door to mm-hmm. us um, and we we're finishing out, 350 hogs a year, 180 to 200 head of cattle, mm-hmm. um, and about 10,000 chickens, about five, 600 turkeys. What's really cool about your operation to me, and uh, I've been out to the farm. I, I know you've had a uh, Taylor Fry came out to the farm too yeah, before I was even work, here. Uh, she did the the intern work day or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was fun. With Mike, yeah. Mike Dana came yep. out there, yeah. So I, I knew about the farm before I even came and worked here at Farm Bureau, but then I got to come and visit the farm and see kind of how things are working. It's really neat. You really put your animals to work. Right. You know, you use your livestock to take care of the land, which is pretty cool. Tell me about, like, how that, you know, how they all work together. Yeah, so, um, and, and a lot's been being said about this recently in a lot of publications about animals' effect on soil and uh, carbon uh, dioxide and all other things. But basically, our, our, the mission of our farm is to use our animals to mimic nature, how they, how they would have been behaving in nature if man hadn't come along and domesticated them. Somewhat, you know. So, you know, we are uh, using managed intensive rotational grazing using multiple species. So basically, the way our grazing works is we're setting up daily paddock moves for our cattle. Uh, what that's doing for us and for the cows is... A, uh, we're able to maximize or maximize the acreage that we're on. We're a small farm, 
So we're able to um, maximize that acreage. We're harvesting fresh grass every every day for those cows and able to keep it in that vegetative state to where it's got the highest amount of uh, nutrients. Um, we're moving those cattle from yesterday's manures to where the parasite load is lower on them. So um, that's better for their health, of course, mm-hmm. but it's also allowing us to reduce the amounts of chemical wormers and fly sprays and things like that. And then it's also mowing that. We're also trampling grass, uh, which is feeding the microbes in our soil. So that that's what it comes down to. We're feeding microbes and earthworms in our soil, and that's what's building the topsoil. So using a strategic animal impact to build that topsoil, but mainly feeding the microbes, which is doing that for mm-hmm. us. So behind the cows, we come with our poultry, whether that's our uh, chickens or turkeys that we raise for the holidays. Those turkeys are coming behind the cows and sanitizing and fertilizing that pasture. They're going to pick through those uh, cow pies, eat the parasite larva, and then put down really uh, high nitrogen fertilizer behind them. So we're able to um, basically have our own fertilizer on farm. Mm-hmm. What, what I love about that is that it's a, I mean, you're 130 acres now. Mm-hmm. In agriculture terms, that's a tiny farm. That's a very I mean, small it's a very farm. small farm. Yep. And I, I love that because you, Galen Irishings at, at 23, you and your you and your dad can go and find this piece of land and say, how you got you to be creative. How can we make a living on this piece of land doing, you know, this rotational grazing? Right, yeah. And, and what we're able to do, I mean, in, in most farms, you're going to have this commodities being produced over here, this commodities being produced over here, what we're able to do is stack enterprises on the same acreage. Mm-hmm. So our animals are visiting different acreage throughout the year, so we're not having to dedicate particular acreage to particular things. And that, that was a, a big reason we moved away from doing cow-calf production on our farm and went to straight stocker cattle mm-hmm. um, so we could run one herd. It just makes a small farm run a lot more efficiently. Easier to manage, right? It's a lot easier to manage. Uh, it's, it's less um, land-intensive because we're not having to manage a bull herd and a weaning herd and a cow herd. So we're able to run all those cattle together. Mm-hmm. Yep. You move these every day. Your chickens, do you move those every day? Or so the way we your poultry is moving about a, once a week? About once a week. So okay. we, we raise the, we, we've shifted that model almost every year, but we've, we've settled on something the last couple of years where basically we're running larger batches of birds and moving them in, in larger areas on the farm and moving them less frequent. So before we were running, uh, groups of 50 and moving them daily. Mm-hmm. And that got to be pretty labor intensive. Um, so now we're running groups of 400 and moving them weekly, but, but in larger areas. Yeah. Yep. But you're having to be more efficient. I mean, you've grown, you've doubled the size of the farm of the land that you're covering. Right. Yeah. You know, you've picked up the production and this is all kind of all going back to, you know, the farmer's market. You were originally just a farmer's market. Tell me how that, you know, that production grew. Did it follow your business into Baton Rouge or did the business pick up and you had to grow? How did that yeah, kind of I mean, work? I, so hate to use the word, but we grew our business organically. Of course. So uh, th- we allowed the market to dictate what we did. Yeah, of course, we, we did some um, strategic stuff to, to make sure we were getting more people to that farmer's market. We were reaching out to more restaurants and things like that. Uh, but we figured out where our ceiling was there. And in, I think it was 2014, um, we're, we were looking at it and we were the slaughterhouse was making more money on our animals than we were mm-hmm. um, because they, we were paying them to do all the processing and cutting for us. And we were looking at it and said, well, what if we took that that cost in-house, did the processing ourselves, and then had a retail component to that to mm-hmm. where 
we're open seven days a week and we can move more product and a hundred at a hundred percent retail. Mm -hmm. So the, the higher amounts of our product we can move at retail, the better our margins are going to be. So that led to y'all's butcher shop. That's right. Downtown Baton Rouge, not downtown technically, but in the heart of Baton Rouge. Yeah, we're in the South Downs area. Yeah. Yep. Um, over on Perkins road. Uh, we opened there in 2016. So that was about a two year process of, building it a uh, building inventory on farm to be able to support it because mm-hmm. I, I mean it was a big question mark of what's the volume going to be that we move through there and the only way we were able to come up with that is i took farmers market sales that's what that was like six to eight hours a week and extrapolated that out and said well we're going to be open 50 something hours a week and yeah it, it we nailed the number pretty close really? based, based on those numbers yeah um, yeah, so we opened in, in uh, October of 2016, and uh, been so we're coming up on three years. Yeah, yep. it's been fun. I, I actually got to go out there the week you opened. That's right. Because yeah. it was pretty recently after I'd done the story with you. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty cool to kind of watch. I've been able to watch the process and obviously uh, partake in some of the stuff out of the cabinet, the um, the butcher glass. But one of the coolest things about your shop is the window, where we can see you can go into the butcher shop. And, you know, you can obviously see everything in the case. Is that what you call it, the case? Yeah, the meat case. The meat case. Yep. You can see everything in there, but you can also, there's a window into the actual, uh, I guess, butcher the room. cut room. The cut yep. room. The yeah, cut that, room. Was, that was a really important part of the design of the building because, you know, everybody hears the word butcher and they think they know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a lot more than just the steaks that are being cut at your grocery store. So... To me, to really drive that home and show those customers this isn't your typical butcher shop, we have a, a four-by-five window that looks straight into that cutting cooler that you see a side of beef, a side of pig hit the table and get fabricated into your steak. What I like about that is that it's something that's bigger than just a shop, but it's kind of the way that y'all do things on the farm and the way that y'all do things on the shop, but it's transparency. It's showing that customer hey, this is how it starts and this is how it finishes. And that happens also out on the farm too, and something I've seen. Yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, been pretty surprising for us is the amount of like the, the educational component of what we do. Uh-huh. Um, educating people about meat and how to cook. You mm-hmm. know, that that's probably 70% of the conversations that happen in that shop is how to cook a cut of meat. Yeah. Um, because unfortunately, because the grocery stores have moved to the box meat model, you're only seeing three or four cuts mm-hmm. out there. You got, a, you got a New York strip, a ribeye, that's right, maybe and a, a fillet, and, and, and a fillet. Uh, that's a roast. Pretty much what everybody knows yeah. how to cook. And there's a lot more interesting cuts out there that we can uh, educate them on, inform them about. Because you know, being a whole animal butcher shop, the fact of the matter is, you're gonna sell out of a cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been in the st- shop one time with you, and you've actually had ribeyes available. <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's just part of it. It's a it's a volume game to where I can't justify bringing in another animal just for ribeyes mm-hmm. because I've got for for every twenty pounds of ribeye that I have. I've got 40 to 50 pounds of round to move, mm-hmm. you know, so we've gotten creative on how to move those products through snack sticks and jerkies. and Which uh, you brought us some today. Thank that's you right. for that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, I, I leave trails of jerky everywhere I go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's been kind of the fun part of it is a lot of R&D. Um, like I said, w- the day we open, me and our first butcher, when somebody come in and ask for a particular cut, we would just automatically say, yeah, we can do that. 
because we knew we could. We had the whole animal there to work with, but we'd have to run to the office, watch a YouTube video real quick, and then run back to the cut room and cut it. It's a lot of learning on the fly. A kind lot of, of learning on the fly. So that that's what has been fun is like every, everybody that works in that shop right now had zero days of cutting experience when they came to work for us. But I, but I love it because it was a clean Blake slate. Mm-hmm. And we've taught them the way we want to cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really creative guys. You're yeah. also probably able to use feedback from customers, too, to, yep. to kind of fine-tune, right? Absolutely. And, like, Baton Rouge has a pretty diverse clientele. And the amount of people from who have lived in different parts of the world, they'll come in and pr- look for a particular cut that they can't find, and they know we can do it. That, that's what's been kind of fun. That's kind of neat. Yep. So you get to kind of learn new cuts that's that you right. didn't even know existed. Yeah, like right now, uh, something that's really popular in barbecue culture is the picanha. And we were selling picanhas before picanhas were sexy. What is picanha? So picanha is a, is a cap of the sirloin. Like in, in the United States, we usually leave it on the sirloin and just serve it as a sirloin steak, but if you pull it off, you leave the fat on it, um, it's got about a probably half inch layer of fat on the outside of it that you just leave there. It's like a basting layer. So if you've ever been to like one of the churrascarias, like Texas State Brazil uh-huh. or something like that, that's the cut of meat with the big fat cap on it that they're okay. carving off the... Interesting. Yep, it's uh, a Brazilian style cut. You mentioned the educational and like kind of showing somebody maybe an alternative to, hey, I know you want ribeye can't do that, but here's try this. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten good feedback from people that, that take something and try it the first time? And- yeah, because um, people have this mentality of pork being bad for you and tasteless. So any chance we can uh, change people's mind about that, we take that chance. So if we if somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm looking for a ribeye. Well, let's say we're out of ribeyes. I immediately know how they're wanting to cook that night. They're telling mm-hmm. me they're wanting to grill. So we'll we'll step over one foot and say, hey, man, I, we're out of ribeyes, but take this pork chop here, take it home and cook it just like you're going to cook that ribeye. Mm-hmm. Leave it a little medium, uh, simple Salt, season, pepper. and cook it just like a steak. And that person is that we've changed your life. That was know? my first interaction with you ever. <laughs> See, like that's what people tell me. It's like, man, I know you about your pork chops, and hey, I'll I'll wear that. You well, know? my first interaction was you handing me, you know, uh, I think four pork chops and said salt and pepper, a little slab of butter, maybe just cook it like you would a ribeye, and that's exactly what you told me. Yeah, because um, pork, and in, in you know conventional production methods these days, they're getting a very monoculture diet. So it's going to be a corn soybean ration and not much more than that, um, which leads to a very bland flavor profile in the fat. And in pork, all the all the flavor is in the fat. So our hogs, we're raising them out in a wooded area where they're getting grasses, roots, worms, grubs, uh, acorns during the fall. They get a, a corn and soybean ration as well to make sure they're gaining adequately. But they're getting all this variety to their diet that's going to add to the complexity of the flavors of the meat. So that, mm-hmm. that's the main thing, and as well as the breed of hog. We're raising a heritage breed, Berkshire hog, that um, hasn't been bred for leanness, so it'll lay down fat a lot better than um, kind of more modern genetics. Gotcha. Yep. We talked about picanha, and mm-hmm. I've never even heard of that cut, but something I've gotten into lately is barbecuing, smoking. I, got, I bought a Traeger. Uh, I jumped on the bandwagon, and I love it because I can smoke meats. I can I can cook longer yeah. longer cooks. So I've gotten really in and particular about the kind of meat. So I can imagine how that picanha, you know, would be something special. I might have to try and come try it. But yeah, what else? We get that a lot. Like you have a lot come, of people doing that. Come in, it's like, man, I got a Traeger. Like Traeger's all the rage right now. Before that, it was the big green egg yeah. and, and things like that. But yeah, when people tell us how they're going to cook, that kind of shows us where we need to direct them. 
You yeah. know, we have a cooking method in mind. Okay, now we know what cuts are going to work. Yeah, for that. that's awesome, and, and that's what's fun. Yeah, that's really cool. So let's move to something else. Every time I cook something on the Traeger. I pull my phone out. I make an Instagram story of some sort mm-hmm. to rub it in my friend's face. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. But it's something I do with everything food I cook. Yeah, yeah. You got it. You got to share the food you cooked. Yep. I know that's something that you've done for a long time. But since at least I've been watching, you've been very active on social media with the farm, with the butcher shop. Where is that fall in the equation of of how you do things? Yeah, I mean. Um whether we like to admit it or not, social media is a very valuable tool in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the cheapest, most effective way to get a message out. Um, I think between Facebook and Instagram, we're knocking on like 7,000 followers. So mm-hmm. like I could pull ads, I can do all these sorts of things, but I can pick up my phone, snap a picture and get a message out pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a challenge for us because there's so many aspects to what we do. You know, and, and how to like balance the content of uh-huh. what we're posting, whether it's food, farm, or butchering. So mm-hmm. that that's kind of the challenge for us. We've had like social media management companies approach us about management, and I ju- I'm just honest with them. Like, there's no way that some outside office person is going to be able to effectively communicate what we're doing. Well, what's really cool about yours is it's from the field or it's from the butcher, the, the, the cutting room. You right. know, that's what yeah. I think makes your feed really something that and it's people, the people can, doing people it. can engage. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the butchers that are making the post. It's yeah. the farmers that are making the post. Yeah. And, uh, we had somebody working in the shop doing it for a while yeah. for us and she did a great job. She moved to DC. Um, and I kind of had to take it over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was the original poster yeah. on the farm just cause we had new employees. Um, but I've made like a conscious effort over the last six months to like at least post every other day yeah. or if not every day. And it's just, communicating with customers it, yeah. it creates a level of transparency and really shows them a, like it, it when they can see a post in one day of us moving cows and then that afternoon seeing our butchers cut steaks that's full circle yeah. they're, they're able to see the whole story right there well they're cutting steaks and then sometimes you post about what you like right, the steak yeah. actually on your on your tail plate yeah i mean and, and to me it kind of aggravates my wife sometimes where like we're sitting down to eat and i'm snapping a picture of my plate i feel like such a fangirl when i'm yeah, doing it but I it's know. like it's easy content. It's yeah. like I'm I'm obviously cooking our meat every night. Why not show people how we're cooking it? Because yeah. they're looking for ideas, and yeah. you know, what I, goes I don't well have, with this yeah. with this uh, you know, have, pork chop. And everybody is so intimidated by cooking these days. And the the point I'm trying to get across is that I don't have a ton of time to cook. Usually, when I cook, it takes me about thirty minutes, and this is what I'm whipping up. Mm-hmm. It's easy. Like we we have. We overthink cooking. Mm-hmm. Like we think everything's got to be gourmet and perfect and everything. Look in your fridge, make a pot of rice and go from there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, that's, that's my go-to. Make a pot of rice and then we'll, we'll start from there. You know? You're the cook in the house, right? Pretty much, yeah. It, you also run a business mm-hmm. in the butcher shop and you run the farm and you cook and you have two children <laughs> a wife, a family. How yeah. do you how do you work all that? Like keep all that straight. I mean, yeah, it's so much um, stuff to do. I'm trying to get, get better at it. <laughs> Honestly, sometimes it feels like I'm doing everything part time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to figure out where my time is best spent. Um, you know, when when we were pregnant for our second child, I made a conscious, hey, I have to be more available at home. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have, we we had two under two when we had our second, and that's. That's all hands on deck every night. Yeah. You know, one person can't handle that at night. So I, I made a conscious effort of being home by a particular time. 
Uh, some mornings, you know, I, I try to get out of the house as early as I can in the morning. Um, some mornings, try to, I drag my feet a little bit to make sure at least one child is fed mm-hmm. <laughs> before I just kind of abandon my wife for the day. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a delicate balance, yeah. and you always got to be mindful of and taking the temperature of everything and and checking on checking in on the shop, making sure everything's working properly mm-hmm. there. Uh, being at the farm, and that over the last year, I've been able to get back to the farm more and really grease the wheels there and get that thing operating the mm-hmm. way it should. And then you know, being home, playing with kids, yeah, you know, that's very important. What What do you do? I mean, I, I know it, with all that, it's hard to have time for fun, you know. And you spend probably what twenty hours a week, probably riding around to the back and forth yep. to the farm or to the uh, your processing from, from plant, going to the slaughterhouse, making home deliveries, and going back and forth to the farm about. 18 to 20 hours a week. Seems like that would cut into any kind of fun, Galen, personal time. Mm -hmm. But what do you do, like, outside of work and all that? Do you mean fitness? Yeah, I've tried to get back in shape. (laughs) You know, my my health wasn't the greatest two years ago, so I wanted to get that back under control. So I get started at about 4 in the morning and get get a good workout in. That just clears my head and gets me ready to tackle the day. Um, every year, some me and some buddies of mine try to go on like a good long backpacking trip. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the healthy, healthiest things for my head because mm-hmm. like you go out there, nobody can get you on the phone. Put your phone away. You put your phone away. Um, we backpack during the day. Nobody talks. It's silent. It's some alone it's, time. It's work probably. It's great. Yeah, it's physical. Um, and then I, I grew up riding dirt bikes. And I've recently tried to get back into that. Gotcha. Um, so just staying active. Like, yeah, farming is an active lifestyle, mm-hmm. but um, being intentional about fitness and being healthy yeah. because um, I want to be here for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how does that, you know, intentionality, being more healthy, match up with your farm that, and the food that you raise? Yeah, I mean— where, where, um, where would that line up? Where is the food line up in that? Food is—you can work out as much as you want, but if you're not eating right— it's all for not. You you have to eat well. And yeah. that's that's something I try to communicate to my customers. Baton Rouge is kind of a weird market for that because uh, a lot of times eating comes first and the health comes second. You can eat really well healthy. It's mm-hmm. it's not hard. You know, you start with a protein, you got a vegetable and a little bit of starch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is easy stuff. Like uh and and that goes back to the Instagram like it's not hard to eat well. Yeah. Something I've seen your 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 plates usually have you know a meat and a couple of veggies or yep. something like that and it's not you know huge it's you know, fancy spreads or yeah, anything. Yeah. What is your kind of go to source of protein? I mean, you got you got three really good options. So this is gonna sound odd, but my wife doesn't eat meat. <laughs> so <laughs> she the only meat she'll eat is chicken, white meat chicken. Okay. And white meat chicken is not my favorite. I'm I'm more of a leg and thigh guy. But she she's perfectly happy with like a vegetarian option. Um, but basically, the decisions, meat decisions I'm making is based on what doesn't sell or is damaged. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, my mind's always on the bottom line and like the margins. And I'll say, what's the crooked looking steak or the freezer burn this or whatever? Mm-hmm. I'll take that home and make use of it. Gotcha. Honestly, but um, yeah, I mean, I try to mix it up. To yeah. where it's it's not getting boring, but honestly, I could eat a stir fry over rice almost every night of the week. For somebody that wants to see actually what your product is, where can we go and find the butcher shop or the farm? Are you still at the farmers market every week? No, we we stopped doing the farmers market this year, and that was one of those big decisions of 
I can't do it all. Um, I gotta be, I gotta spend time with my family and Saturday mornings is the time I want to spend with my family when Mm -hmm. we're all under the same roof. Um, so that was a big decision for us. The farmer's market was a great launching point for us. I'm still involved, um, over there. We're doing a big fundraiser with them in the fall in, in Baton Rouge. We're open seven days a week. Um, that's, it's pretty unique that, I mean, Baton Rouge, this is something happening in a lot larger cities and Baton Rouge has a butcher shop bringing in whole animals and it's open seven days a week. Real quick, you said that. I meant to ask you about this earlier. You said the whole animal. Yep. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, so the difference between a whole animal butcher shop and like the meat department at your grocery store, meaning we bring in an entire carcass and we make use of that entire carcass. We're not getting on the phone with a meat distributor and saying, send me eight boxes of ribeyes, 25. And, you know, we have to use the whole animal. And that's... That's uh, a big part of what we do is informing the customer on what that means. For and it's them. a responsible way to do it's it a, too, it's right? It's the most responsible way you can eat meat yeah. is because um, we're making use of the whole thing. We're making dog treats out of the ears. Uh, we're making dog bones out, out of the bones. We're making jerkies and snack sticks. And to me, it's like on the farm, we have a philosophy of respecting that animal. We're, we're showing that animal utmost respect, high animal welfare, and the we want to carry that all the way through the shop. So mm-hmm. it's very important for us to respect the life that that animal lived by making use of the entire animal and not being wasteful. So you're saying there's it's unsustainable to eat nothing but boneless, skinless chicken breasts? That's right. I tell my wife that every night. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. So we find you on social media, Iverstein Farms, Iverstein Family Butcher Shop. On Facebook, or Iverstein Family Farms. And then on Instagram, we're Iverstein Farms. Okay. We're going we're gonna to share all that and stuff. And then IverstenFarms.com the or IverstenFarmsButcher.com on there. Um, we have a lot. It's a really, really great resource to go on there. There's diagrams of whole animals mm-hmm. to where you can kind of break down and see where the, where the cuts are coming from, uh, whether they're locomotive or structural muscles. And we get kind of science nerdy on there. Yeah. A lot of great information on our uh, raisin practices um, as well as our we have a subscription service. That you can go on there, subscribe to a bundle of meat that gets delivered to your doorstep. Everybody doing subscription boxes now. That's right. Uh, you know, Amazon has been doing this forever. Can't beat them, join them. Yeah. So um, what, what can you get in a box? What's a box yeah, like? Yeah, so it's a monthly delivery that you get delivered to your house. Um, our bundle is basically going to be all three of the proteins that we raise, beef, chicken, and pork. Um, and it's going to be, you're going to have ground beef for sure some sort of breakfast for sure, whether it's bacon or breakfast sausage, smoked sausage. And then from there, you'll have about another five to six items. Gotcha. Uh, Roast, chops, um, sausages, and things like that. But basically, it'll feed a family of four about seven to eight meals a week. Awesome. I mean, a month. A month, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And for 100 150 bucks, It's $125, $125 delivered straight to your door. You yep. can't really beat that for seven meals. You know, and, and we're also working with Red Stick Spice and Milnick over there is uh, doing a, a monthly recipe that you get emailed to you, to you that is going to be for one of the cuts yeah. that's in the box. So this month is uh, Flanken-style short ribs. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so you got you got a subscription box, a butcher box once a month. What else What else is coming for the shop? Anything new adding yeah, up so, here? Yeah, uh, so right now we're just doing the butcher bundles locally. So the surrounding parishes around East Baton Rouge Parish, um, we're hoping by the end of the year we can start shipping them. All of our animals are now being slaughtered at a federal plant that at McNeese State University in Lacassine. So now we are able to ship those products across state lines. So we want to take advantage of that and start doing that because we get requests from people around the country so we can start shipping across state lines through our website. 
Um, we are wanting to kind of start wholesaling a little more mm-hmm. of our product. Right now, we're just retailing out of our shop based on our, our inspection level. Um, but we're wanting to be able to wholesale to grocers and things like that. You know, our retail location's great. We love it. But do we want to build more retail locations or just have our product available to more customers um, in rural or outlying areas at the grocery store that they're shopping at? Mm-hmm. So I think that's something we're working on and, and working towards. Yeah. Last thing I want to ask you about, Galen, and um, it's something kind of bringing it back to the very beginning. You went to New Hampshire. You went to Virginia to learn about how other people are doing what you're doing. Has that come full circle? Or is there anybody that's following you around and looking at yeah, what I you're mean, doing on y'all's farm? Mostly people in Louisiana that are wanting to get involved. Um, we, hey, we love showing people. Because if um, this type of agriculture and this type of marketing our products is going to gain any traction, we need more people taking more market share. Me by myself is not going to affect the market share of this movement. So we need more people producing products and getting them out. One of the things that, like I said earlier, it's so fascinating to me because 65 acres, 100 acres, while it sounds like a lot when you're looking at land in Baton Rouge, when you look you know, in West Baton Rouge Parish or when you look in Franklin Parish, that's attainable. And that's something that somebody in my generation, your generation, right? that's something that we can say, oh, wait, I can yep. have a career in agriculture. Yeah, or somebody's living on the farm and maybe the circumstances are that they're looking at having to leave the farm for another job. Getting the older generation to allow the younger generation to carve out a piece of that farm that they can produce their own enterprise on. And and having out-of-the-box thinking of saying, yeah, we're growing thousands of acres of soybean and corn, but what else can we do on maybe this piece of land over here that's not as accessible or it isn't great for growing corn? What can we do on that piece of property? And I think that's the only way that this is going to grow is because it's hard to buy land. So getting uh, young farmers or young people who are interested in farming connected with some older farmers that have land that they want to leverage mm-hmm. and, and are willing to allow them to farm. It. One of the neat things about it is that's, I think, small farms, in my opinion, coming from a kid who whose family farms, you know, a, a large farm. I think those small farms, though, are what's going to bring in the next generation of, of farmers. Right. And, and it can even be to where you know, what's happening on that farm is keeping the bills paid and is the main enterprise. But just to, you know, capture some of the energy and excitement and of the younger generation, allowing them to produce something else Mm -hmm. on that piece of property. Yeah. I think it's really cool. What about, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm going back to, I'm going back home right now. I'm from Winsboro in Northeast Louisiana. There's not a huge, there's not a Baton Rouge size market. Mm -hmm where I'm from. Any ideas what you would say to that person, you know, that lives in Winsboro or lives in Gilbert, you know, in Franklin yeah, Parish? Yeah, I mean, if you look, um, there's a couple of people in North Louisiana, like um, Mahaffey Farms, you know, they're they're doing it up there around, I think they're around the Alexandria area, but getting that product to the person, making it more convenient to them. Um, that Amazon's doing it. So, unfortunately, everybody has been ingrained. Everything's got to be convenient. Add some convenience to it. So don't they, don't make it so much about the market you live in, but make it about the farm market you can go to. Yeah, or you know that person doesn't have a great grocery store to go to. Maybe you produce chicken and pork, and you got a buddy down the road that's making uh, producing tomatoes and heads of lettuce. Get your uh, efforts together and get your product on that person's doorstep. That's cool. That's an idea. Me and my brother had this these kind of lofty ideas sometimes. I, I, I've always 
I'm always trying to figure out a way to get out of the radio booth and out into a farm somewhere. <laughs> Start think, with a tomato, see if you can keep that one. <laughs> I have trouble with that at the house, actually. It's, <laughs> Me too. It's, it's a real shame. It is. You can you can raise you know, a couple hundred head of, of cattle, but you can't raise a couple tomatoes? That's what I, I like to barter. We, okay. we have meat. I'll barter for veggies. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Galen, thanks for being here with us today. And uh, good luck with uh, the future growth at Iverstein at the butcher and the farm. Appreciate it. And had fun. That was such a fun interview. I've done many stories now with Galen. And, and every time I go and do a story with him, I just am amazed by the things that he's working on, the, the ideas he has, and how he's trying to grow and, you know, move his farm forward. And that's really a benefit to myself and the customers in Baton Rouge and, and surrounding areas that really get to reap the benefits and the rewards of Galen's hard work. And I I just can't get enough of, of this farm and what he's doing. Uh, thanks again, Galen, for joining me on the podcast and sharing your story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now and subscribe so that you can stay up to date whenever we release a new podcast. Another way you can help us is by completing a short survey at twilighttv.org farmlife. This podcast was produced by me, Carl Wiggers, and the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Louisiana Farm Bureau is the voice of Louisiana agriculture. Louisiana agriculture.